Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Stars Crime Podcast. I'm crime correspondent Michael O'Toole. Today, I'm delighted to say we've been joined by our chief reporter, chief sports reporter, Kieran Cunningham. Hello, Kieran. Hi, Nick. How are you? I'm great. Now, Kieran, we, we've invited you on today for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you've got a new pod coming out in the coming days, and I believe it's about Katie Taylor. Yeah, it's called Untouchable. So the first episode drops tomorrow, Tuesday, and it'll be one each day till Friday. It's in the build-up to her fight against Chantal Cameron in the Three Arena in Dublin on Saturday, which is a big homecoming fight, her first fight as a professional, her first fight in Ireland at all since uh, 2016. So it's been quite a while. Um, you know, it's a second go at a podcast. Like I had, a, I did a podcast last year, a series, Shadow Boxing looking at Daniel Kinnan's infiltration of the sport. And that that can be a bit of an appetite to try and get into, you know, the, the more meaty stories, you know, rather, you know, something that might have a wider appeal outside Ireland too. And she is an international figure. Um, so we'll see how it goes. I think we're quite happy with, how, with what we've got. And yes, and Shadowboxing was really an excellent uh, pod. You, you, you picked Katie Taylor because she's such a big character in her own right. Would that, would that be the case? Uh, there's a number of reasons. One of the main what reasons is uh, I've interviewed her a huge amount of t- uh, times over the years, and often she doesn't give a huge uh, a lot away. And uh, no, her whole story about how um, you know the thing, the barrier she faced, you know, just to get into the ring, you know, that it was so hard for girls as she was at the time to be allowed to box in Ireland. What one of the things that struck me was. I've interviewed her a lot, so you're always trying to think of some fresh angle. Because when you interview somebody a, a lot, you know, it, it can be difficult at times. And one of those was, I've seen it a lot of, like, she's a kind of feminist icon because she is in the most male sports. Uh, but she's a woman at the really top of the tree within that male sport and one of the only women who's ever made a serious impact in it. So I just asked her a very short question, are you a feminist? But she said she wasn't. So that just that sparked something in me to look into that, you know, so it kind of framed the first episode is looking at the position, you know, at a wider sense of woman in Ireland, which was very difficult for most of the 20th century, and then focusing on the difficulties for women in sport and specifically in a specific, uh, sport in Ireland. And that's a very interesting story in itself. You know, uh, there was huge opposition. No Irish woman went to the Olympics in 1956 with Maeve Kyle. She talked about the abuse she got. Uh, there were letters to the Irish Times calling her a disgrace to Irish motherhood for going to the Olympics. The main opponent that stopped a woman going to the Olympics for 20 years was uh, uh, Archbishop John Charles McQueen. You know, which why meant, did I think you were going oh, to yeah, say Yeah, well, why, why would that surprise people? You know, and I talked to, because it made me think then, you know, about like this is kind of in, in ways the biggest, one of the, maybe the biggest boxing event here since Muhammad Ali came to Ireland in terms of just uh, 
how big a figure she is in the world. And uh, I just made me think of that Ireland in 1972, the marriage bar was in place. So women and the public servers, like teachers, guardies, civil servants, whatever. Well, I think actually guardies, they weren't on guard at the time this, uh, in 72. But you had to leave the service once you got married. And uh, at 1972 was also the year the Irish women's movement started. So I, one of the people I talked to was Rosita Sweetman. Who was one of the founders of, the, founders of that, and she was uh, she told me a story about McQuaid I didn't know. He wanted to ban the pommel horse in gymnastics because he thought well, uh, young girls and women could use it to try and get sexual stimulation. So that's the kind of stuff women in sport had to deal with in Ireland. So that was kind of the starting point, and we did to different angles then for different episodes. But from episode one, I kind of hooked it from there. So, and, and I'm interested. Why did, did she offer any explanation as to why she didn't consider herself a feminist? Uh, no, she doesn't really expect, like I have the, the quotas in the podcast, but she, you know, she gave a couple of lines, you know, I don't really think of myself that way. And then she just said, I'm here just to, you know, represent women or do the, my, try and build a legacy or something. I'm not sure the exact words, but I think what's what, because I, I teased this out a bit with, with Rosita, uh, with Deirdre Nelson, who's uh a former boxer who was from Antrim, who's a very important figure in the history of women's boxing here because she took a sex discrimination case to the Boxing Union of Ireland and won that case, which allowed women to, to box here. And she's uh, uh, she, she would definitely consider herself a feminist. So I talked to her about that. And I talked to her, Ema Ryan, who's an Irish writer, who's just brought out a really good book called The Grass Ceiling. Uh, she was a camogie player for Tipperary, and it's about being a woman in sport. And they we kind of teased that out a bit. And one of the things a lot a few people say is there are women who are a bit very wary of that uh, of that as a label. This feel that it's, it's stigmatized in some way. Now, I don't think it is. Like I think uh, Katie Taylor is the epitome of feminism because of feminism is all about equality, you know, and celebrating equality and and to do what she's done in such a such a male environment. Like it's really hard to think of a more male environment than boxing. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I can see why she's a permanent icon to many. And um, has, did your view, when you were making the programme, did your view change as in, do you think it is easier for women to be involved in sport nowadays? Because I'm thinking of those controversies about the changing rooms and all. Wasn't it in the the, the, the ladies' football soccer team? Even that's quite recent. So you know, has is there a groundswell of support for women in, in sport or are there still barriers, would you think? There are still barriers, but the situation has definitely improved. You know, I, I, you, know you only have to look at the media. Like if you look at now um, the, the coverage across the board, like uh, all the games of the Irish women's soccer and rugby teams are televised live. Uh, so the amount of camogie and women's GA games that are televised, the amount of coverage... Uh, uh, female individual athletes get. And and a lot of, you look at the last couple of Olympics, um, a lot of the major stars here now are are female in sport. And, you know, even somebody, you know, somebody like Rachel Blackmore, who's in an unusual position because she's a woman competing against men, but she's the first jockey, female jockey to win the Grand National, first female jockey to be leading a jockey at Cheltenham, you know, winning big the biggest races at Cheltenham. So, in in many ways, Ireland has been quite groundbreaking in terms of women's sport. You know, there are there are ways to go. You know, the the what happened with the FAI 
you have to look at the FAI at that time as well. You know, it was absolute carnage, chaos, whatever word you want to use. And we know the reasons why. So um, it wasn't just women who suffered at that time in the FAI. But is it fair to say that uh, women's sport is getting much more professional and there's a much more professional ethos around all aspects of women's elite sport anyway? Yeah. Uh, well, some sports, you know, yeah, it's very hard to take a take a broad view of sport uh, or, you know, to lump them all in together. Like if you say like somebody like Sonia O'Sullivan, say in the past, would have been an elite level athlete and you know, probably, probably the greatest sports person out of Ireland for quite a long period. And she would have been operating a sport that was very, very professional. But, you know, if you say women's boxing, like even when Katie Taylor was an amateur, she was still earning more than some professional world champions. You know, uh, so so women's boxing has come on in leaps and bounds. Like even though she, she, she turned professional in 2016, it's far more competitive now than it was in 2016. You know, there's still a road to travel. But it's a relatively new sport. And you see that across the board. Like you see with the the Ireland women's rugby team, uh, like rugby at the men's game has been professional since 1995. You know, only really half the Irish team, uh, the rugby team, are professional. Uh, across the board, teams have only been professional for a few years. So you can never compare like with like. Like it's, I think a lot of people make the mistake of comparing sports to male sport. Like if they if they watch, I watched the say the women's soccer. Uh, Euros last year, and I enjoyed a lot of the games. But you do see some of the reactions on social media. So people saying, "Oh, this is, you know, the standard is good." They're comparing it to men who've been playing at a high level professionally for over a hundred years. You know, so it is good. You just have to watch it for what it is, and not be comparing it to there's no Lionel Messi here. You know, that which is a ridiculous way of looking at it. And, and tell me, I, 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 I'll be a distant observer. I always had a thing for boxing when I was growing up, Barry McGuigan, you know, and I'd be that generation. So I would have an interest. But Kitty Taylor always struck, strikes me when I watch her on TV uh, as someone who's quite guarded. Do you think that is the case? Yeah, it's, she's very guarded. Like, I wouldn't say that many people outside her family uh, know her really well. Like, she's, if you look at her background, it's... Um, her father's from Sheffield in England, you know, so there is you no know, that side of her family. And her mother is from, from Ireland. She grew up in a, you know, a working class estate in Bray, a very, but like her brother uh, and her family are very different in what they've done. Like one brother would be, you know, wor- working in the trades, I'm not sure what, uh, but I think it was an electrician, but another brother is an academic in Trinity. So, you know, they all go, you know, it's like you see that with a lot of Irish families, you know, that. People can, like I see my own family, people do all sorts of things. Uh, no, it doesn't really, it's not rooted as much in your background as it used to be. But also she's an evangelical Christian, you know. So I've kind of framed this at the start about the influence Catholic Ireland had on women. But there's, she's not part of Catholic Ireland as well. Like she has that removed, you know, she's half English. If you, if you are, or half of her family are English. And she's from a Protestant tradition of evangelical Christianity. She is very, she is a very private figure in a sport that kind of forces you to be very public. Like it's all about selling yourself and trash talking and talking yourself up. And it doesn't sit well with her, you know, but, you know, there's there's things, and I mentioned this in the podcast, but, um, you know, you look at the time when she went professional 
like just before Christmas of 2015, like herself and her father Pete were very close. He was her coach for many, trainer for many years, and you know he he would he got involved in another relationship and he left Bridget, and that would you know that caused a huge rift within the family. And this was six seven months out from the Olympics, so uh, that caused huge disruption. You know, before the Olympics, she lost the Olympic qualifiers, she lost in the World Championships, and then she lost in Rio itself. So she had three defeats in a short space of time, and she I remember how stunned she was in Rio like I was at Rio at her higher fight and like she was just uh she didn't you know her world was falling apart and very quickly she went professional very quickly she moved to Connecticut in America this small town called Vernon which is the kind of place um you'd see in a David uh Lynch film you know like Blue Velvet or something you know those white picket fences and it's it's very much very quiet middle America and it's very isolated and she went there and she knew nobody I know when the winter's there, you know, it'd be 20 below, it'll be snow everywhere. She's out running on her own. The first six months she was there, she had no TV. She had no laptop. She used to sit, uh, uh, you know, when she wasn't training or at church, she would watch Netflix on her phone. So, you know, there is that drive in her, you know, and I, what I described as the lonely passion of Katie Taylor, you know, what's uh, the Brian Moore uh, novel reference to it, the Lonely Pastor Judith Heron, but she is um, she's a remarkable, remarkably interesting character. But I do sometimes wonder what what will happen to her after boxing. You know, she's thirty seven next month. You can't go on forever. She could get beaten this Saturday. She's up against a serious opponent, and um, you know, at once a lot of athletes struggle with life. You know, the afterlife, as they call it. And she has been so driven by her ambitions within boxing from a very young age that, you know, I hope she can find something else after it. And how do you think the fight will go? You said there is a possibility she could, could get beaten. It's going to be a tough uh, fight for her, is it? Yeah, well, she's she said one, you know, the, she had a mandatory uh, defence uh, at the end of last year, you know, and you, it's one of those that she was always going to win and she hit no great heights. But her best performance was probably ever was probably against Amanda Serrano in Madison Square Garden in New York last year, you know, just over a year ago. And she was amazing that night. But, you know, that by the time Saturday comes around, that will be 13 months on. As I say, she'll be nearly 37. And she's also stepping up in weight, which is always a great unknown in boxing, because that means effectively you are going to go in against somebody who's more power than you because you've been used to... Like Katie Taylor has a lot of attributes, but she wouldn't have a lot of huge amount of power. Like you look at the amount of uh, knockouts on her record, it's, it's quite low. She hasn't had a knockout in a few years now. So more than likely, it will go the distance. If anyone is to get a knockout, it would be Cameron. You know, but uh, I had this conversation with, uh, I better not name them, but somebody close who would know the scene very well. And they said the hometown, I was just uh, saying to him, uh, you know, because this build is such a big event. It's Katie Taylor's homecoming. She is such a big figure within the sport. She's fighting in Ireland for the first time as a professional. And boxing is based on judges, judges' scorecards, and how they're, can they be swayed? Like, there's plenty of evidence that indicates they can be swayed by factors like a hometown crowd, uh, you know, the, the reputation that somebody has. So I was just saying to this person, you know, what would that be worth? Is that, is that worth a round? Because you're judged at each round of 10 rounds. So would that give you one round? Would it give you two rounds? And he said, hometown fighters, the stats are 61% of the win. So to me, 
if it's tight, Katie Taylor will win. She'll get the verdict. But uh, no, at the same time, Cameron is capable of winning by the two or three rounds margin that she thinks she. I think she would need because I think a tight decision, judges will favour the hometown fighter, especially if it's somebody the stature of Katie Taylor. So really, I don't know. You don't know that night because. You know, what do you base? We don't know where Katie Taylor is. You know, there's no guarantee she is at the level she was at when she fought Serrano. Because with boxing and with any sport, like there's one day it's no longer there. Like you'll see it with Manchester City in 10 or 20 years, maybe. But there could be some day it's no longer there. I was only talking to somebody about um, a crime reporter talking about Man City. It's never a good thing. But I was only talking about this today. You know what? When Pep goes, I think people will realise, because I would say, it's like Klopp, I think Pep gets us maybe 10 or 12 points a year. I think like Klopp as well. And I think when he goes, people will see, will realise how important he was, because everybody's talking about all the Galacticos and we have, but I think a massive factor is Klopp. So you're quite right, it is, it is you know, he is a factor. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that, because... You know, uh, uh, the equivalent of a, of a football manager is a boxing trainer. And Ross Edemite, Katie Taylor's trainer, is a brilliant, is brilliant at getting her. Like she, the condition she's in for every fight is amazing. But I actually think she still misses Pete a bit. I think Pete was smarter uh, in, in, in controlling Katie's worst urges. And what I mean by that is Katie Taylor has this pride that a lot of boxers have, that technically she's miles ahead of everyone, including Cameron, including Serrano, like if she just boxes clever and does the technical things right that she's well capable of doing, you know, stays out of trouble, um, she'd, she'd win every fight comfortably, I think. But when, when fighters make it a scrap, which, which I think Cameron will try to do as well, she can't resist being involved. She thinks like, who the hell are you? If you want a scrap, I'll do it. And so far she's been able to do that as well. But I think that is, uh, I think, Pete would have be uh, would be able to rein her back a little bit and say, "Hold on, you know, with a scrap, you could be just caught cold with one punch. You know, you're just a dangerous game. Just get through the rounds, round by round. They're only two minutes long. Get through it. Do the smart thing, and you'll win." God, Kieran, you've got me excited. I must say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to myself. Tell me, would you agree that uh, Katie Taylor and Kelly Harrington? I know she was there was a bit of a controversy about her a few weeks ago, but largely. They are two massive PR successes for boxing in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you look at the bigger picture, yeah, like yeah, as you'd say with Kelly, uh, she took a bit of bad for it a few weeks ago. But overall, there's a huge amount of good feeling towards them. And one of the things that you see that is um, every year there's a survey um, that comes out uh, where a PR company polls people and asks who's the most admired sports person in Ireland. And year, uh, Kelly Harrington's done quite well the last couple of years, but year after year, Kelly, uh, Katie Taylor wins that poll and wins it by a mile. And I always find that interesting because a lot of the people who say that will never have seen her fight in the flesh. And also, even to watch her on TV, like she's not on, she's not even on Sky Sports or BT Sports. She's on Dazon now, which is an yeah. app, and then you cast your TV, or you have it on your TV as an app even. Uh, so, um, but she has that aura. I think people admire something in her, uh, and they have been like it's obviously the sports image in Ireland has taken a massive battering over the last ten years. Uh, but they are two, the two probably the brightest lights of it. Uh, you know, that's been good for it. 
Well, uh, you bring me on to my next question, Karen. and crime reporters don't do happy, so we've got that out of the way, but you're quite right. Boxing, and it's the reason why I'm talking to you today, boxing has taken a battering the last 10 years in Ireland. And I would contend that is largely to do with a man called Daniel Kinnan. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone will argue with you on that. Um, you know, uh, there was an interesting article in the Sunday Times yesterday about Michael Foley, you know, as around the Katie Taylor fight. And he touched on the Kinnan stuff in the build-up, which was good to see, because I think it's important. You can't ignore it this week, because... You know, even look, the three arena is uh, north inner city, you know, where a lot of the carnage within that feud took place. It's only a couple of miles away from the Regency Hotel itself. And there are key figures involved uh, in, in the, on the night who are very much involved with Daniel Kinnan. So for those reasons, I think this story that should be part of the, the, the bills up this week. But one of the things Michael, uh, Michael talked to a guy, Leonard Gunning, because you will hear some people say this week, this is the first time boxing, pro boxing has been back in Dublin since the Regency. That's not true. There's been about 15 or 16 bills since the Regency, but they've all been very small scale, you know, really, you know, what they call small hall shows. And uh, one of the guys who promoted a lot of those shows, a, guy, a chap called Leonard Gunning, and I can fully talk to him, and he talked about the cost of insurance, but on a fight in Dublin, it's 20 times the cost of insurance terms to Belfast. Which is a real boxing town, as you know, and um, a large part of that, I think, will be down to the Regency and Daniel Kinnan. But uh, you know, insurance co uh, costs of the south of border, there's an issue with them anyway, and also everything in Dublin seems to be ludicrously expensive. <laughs> but 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 just on, before I, uh, I finish that point, uh, he said when they went outside Dublin, Leonard Gunning, you know, that was when they went to venues, say in Waterford or Sligo or Cork, you know, different people approached them and would say, but maybe but on boxing. There was just this, you know, you could, he said you could see in their eyes. It's like, no, God, we're not touching boxing. They were wary of it. And, you know, and it's had, a, it's had an impact on potential sponsors, uh, potential venues. Uh, you know, it's been uh, but, uh, broadcasters and, and different media. Like I know even within the newspaper industry, a lot of people within the sport that, like say the Sunday event yesterday, they didn't have one word on this, you know. And that's the day you would normally be previewing, uh, you know, a Katie Taylor fight if it's a Saturday, and particularly such a big deal of a fight, you know. And the other Sundays uh, give it quite a lot of coverage, but they stayed away from it. And some media just have been turned off boxing completely because of the links to Kinnan. So tell me, um, the, the reason why we're talking to you about this today is one of the episodes that you have about the Katie Taylor fight is about the let's call it the Kinnan effect. Yeah. Okay, how, because it has been a decade, how much damage do you think Daniel Kennan did to Irish boxing? Uh, I think, I, I don't know how you measure it, but he did it serious damage. You know, he, he, like we'll only really know that, I think, in 10 or 20 years' time, you know, to see, you know, to see what the post-Katie Taylor world is like. You know, would there anyone have a hope of filling the three arena in the future, you know, is it, you know, is there like, even though Dublin is a, is a strong boxing city in some ways, like if you look at the, the champions, Olympic and professional that come out of the place, you look in the North inner city, there's a road called champions Avenue. That's mm -hmm. so-called because so many boxing champions came from that area. Uh, you look at the amount of boxing clubs that are in Dublin um, you know, the amount that are involved in the sport. But, 
boxing has often been a hard sell here. Like even when you know big name fighters like Lennox Lewis and Nassim Hamid fought here, there weren't great crowds. You know, tickets were were hard to sell, and uh, you know the the last time there was a full house at a venue of you know of the scale of, of the three arena was in the old point depot when Bernard Dunn became world champion. That was two thousand and nine. It's fourteen years ago now. You know, so uh you know there's a generation really, you know, that would have been in their early teens then or mid teens and they're touching thirty now. And you know, they've never been to big time pro boxing. You know, will they ever go to it if they don't go this week? Will they ever go to it in Dublin? So because I think uh, it's got an uncertain future, uh, definitely. And, and that's a valid point because, as we know, Daniel Kennan, I know he'd, he'd been a fan of boxing and had been involved in it, but it was only in 2012, really, that he set up MTK, which would later become MGM. And we know that he's alleged, you know, you know we know his story, background with MGM and the whole MTK story. So in 2009, that's three years before MTK was set up. So was, do you think it was in general decline before Kennan got involved? Well, well, let's see, this isn't, it's important to state as well, it's not just an Irish problem. Like part of the problem was, um, if you look at the 1990s, say, do you remember ITV used to a pro box and bill on every Saturday night? And they used to get great numbers, sometimes up to 15 million, like generally between 10 and 15 million, depending who was on. And the likes of Steve Collins and Nigel Benn and Chris Eubank, uh, et cetera, you know, they, they became they became household names. But, but as Boxing went down a route where it went to pay-per-view. It went to pay channels like Sky. And then even if you had a Sky subscription, often it was pay-per-view for the actual fight itself. So there's an extra charge on top of that. Now, that was very good in, in one way. And that boxers made more money. Some boxers made a lot more money. Uh, you know, and other people within the sport, particularly promoters and managers, made a lot more money. But it, it lost an audience. Like it became more invisible and more marginalized. And that's, uh, you know, uh, you, you you find that, you know, cricket went down that route too. And a lot of people talk uh, about that within cricket, that it was a big mistake, that it's shrunk their audience. And it did shrink the the boxing audience too. So if you look at the, you know, why was Bernard Dunn packed? Like RTE got behind Bernard Dunn. So his fights went terrestrial TV. And that makes a massive difference because to, to get people in, uh, you have to be visible. But if you're not visible, it's a hard sell. So, so we know that in April last year, so 13 months ago, the Garda and the Americans issued this wanted case against Daniel Kinnan, his father Christie and his brother Christopher. And they accused them of being you know, drug barons and heading a, a billion euro cartel. And there's been evidence in Spanish courts and, and Irish courts about these men. But before that, there were significant efforts. I would contend there were probably three different sort of attacks by pro-Kenyan supporters in boxing, trying to to rehabilitate him and that dreaded word sports washing. For me, it was there was a there were probably three concerted efforts, say from maybe twenty seventeen to to twenty twenty two. To it's clear to me that Kenyan wanted to become the Mister Fixit of boxing. The, the man who organizes everything. And we know that, you know, Tyson Fury, when he agreed the the fight with Anthony Joshua, he announced it and he thanked Daniel Kinnerhan, as he called him. So there were significant efforts underway to 
make him the legitimate face of boxing worldwide. And I think it very nearly succeeded. And I only think it was the launching of the sanctions that that killed it because there had been a huge head of steam maybe six months to a year before that. How close do you think he came to becoming, you know, boxing's Mr. Fix-It? Well, he was at the pinnacle of the sport. You know, that, that, that's, um, you know, he achieved, uh, like, uh, he, he was uh, a major power broker in a lot of big fights. Um, and I think that was his goal. I think there definitely was a concerted campaign. You know, there's a, there's a, so many things to, to go through here on this. Now, one of them is, you know, that was la- April last year, as you say, um, Mick, what has happened in pro boxing with since then? You know, like one of the uh, one of the issues with pro boxing was the lack of governance within it that allowed somebody like Daniel Kinnan to become involved and to rise so high and so far. And nobody has tried to address that since. Nobody has said, "Okay, we need to put something in place here to stop this ever happening again." Has anybody in boxing spoken out in the last thirteen months saying, "How the hell did this happen?" You know, you know. This has been terrible for the sport. We should never have allowed somebody like Daniel Kinn to become so part of us. There hasn't. It's been complete. Uh, can we use omerta? That's somebody, a word somebody <laughs> else used. A word somebody else used. Uh, but, uh, but Bob, the, Bob Aram spoke out, but I don't think he was doing it through the goodness of his heart. No, no. There, there's uh, well, Bob Aram has a famous had a famous quote. Uh, I was lying yesterday, but today I'm telling the truth. So from <laughs> that, from that, you always take with Bob. So as to say, with a large pinch of salt, or or the thinking that he might have different reasons for saying something. And just you can explain this better than me, but he would have been associated with Kenan in, in the run up to the sanctions. And once the sanctions came on, it was like a light a light being switched off or on. He completely turned on him and started bad mouthing him, affecting saying what a bad guy he was. But beforehand, he'd said he was brilliant. Yeah. Well, there's something to say there actually. Um, Eddie Hearn, the head of Matchroom. Now Eddie Hearn. Uh, is behind, you know, he he is um, both Katie Taylor and Chantel Cameron this weekend are matchroom fighters, you know, so he's a key figure within the sport. And he's like a few in boxing that he says some stuff that, you know, oh, come on, Eddie, I just don't believe that. But he did say something a couple of years ago and he was bang on. He said, it's hard to be involved at a high level in this sport and not have dealt with Daniel Kinnan. And I, th- I actually agree with him on that. I don't think he's, you know, like some might have said, oh, he's just trying to cover his own back. But I think there were very few people at a high level within boxing. And I would bring broadcasters into that. Like broadcasters should not be let off the hook because they they bankroll the sport to a large extent. But, uh, you know, promoters, managers, broadcasters, etc., virtually or the vast majority of them did deal with Daniel Kinnan. And the information I have... Uh, from talking to people, particularly in the UK in recent in the last couple of months, is there are some people still dealing with him and that he still has been involved in boxing. Now, I did make the assumption, and maybe you did as well, Mick, that when the US sanctions hit, that he would just step away, you know, that this was too tricky. And that it, I thought maybe just for his ego, he wanted his name out there. But it seems that even though his name can't be out there, that he does, uh, there are bills and there are certain... Uh, promotion and management companies that his fingerprints are all over. So I know this is really interesting. This is something that I want to explore. So say from, I don't know, maybe 2012 when he set up MTK to 2017, really, it, it, he had a sort of hidden hand in boxing. He was sort of 
guiding things without promoting himself. But then 2018 to 2022, I don't know, was it his ego? He sort of went public and he had this campaign, as we've spoken about, to make him really, really relevant. So do you think, and what would your sources tell you, believe this, that he's now gone back into a sort of a hidden hand again, that he's trying to control things and influence things in the background? Yeah, that, that's, yes, is the short answer. You know, that's, yeah, that is, he's kind of reverted to where his position of a few years ago, that he has a control, a significant involvement, but it's not as public involvement as, as he tried to, as he had a couple of years ago when people were name checking him all the time. You know, it's like one of the things I, I've um, thought long and hard about, Mick, is how do you deal with the legacy of Daniel Kinnan boxing and MTK in that so many people, uh, like if you put it this way, because uh, boxing is a small world and you're never that, you know, with most people uh, who have any kind of degree of success, they either dealt with Daniel Kinnan or they're one step away from somebody who dealt with Daniel Kinnan. So you have like, like I interview Andy Lee for this Kenny Taylor podcast. And Andy Lee, he's a cousin of Tyson Fury and Tyson Fury is tied to MTK Global and he trained uh, Tyson Fury for some of his fights. But I thought about this and I think uh, I was wondering about this. Do you condemn everybody or dismiss everybody or challenge everybody to talk about Daniel Kinnan who dealt with them or was in any way involved in MTK? And I just think that's a bit too broad. But I do think that people who, in effect, uh, did try and sports watch his name in public. And I would have Tyson Fury in that, you know, because he talked them up so much. Sonny Edwards, Sam Jones, you know, they talked them up publicly. And that's one of the reasons, you know, I asked Jamie Moore uh, is training Chantel Cameron and he was shot in the case of mistaken identity outside Daniel Kennan's uh, villa in Marbella. And as you said, we talked about this before, that it, you know, you can argue that that's where the Kennan Hutch feud started with that shooting. And though Mm -hmm. Jamie Moore has no connection with criminality, but he was, uh, he did uh, in an interview with The Guardian, he described Daniel Kennan as a great bloke. Uh, he had social media posts where he attacked the media for what were written about uh, Daniel Kinnan. And as we know, you know, the, the, what was written was the truth. So I think somebody like that, like when he was in Dublin a few weeks ago for a press conference, I asked Jenny Moore about this and whether he regretted the support for Daniel Kinnan. But I, so I th- do think that people who kind of contribute to kind of legitimizing Daniel Kinnan as a force in boxing, like what they said in public or wrote in, on social media, whatever, I think it's legitimate to challenge them now. Um, just thinking back to Bob Aram, he effectively said that Kenhan threatened him at one stage. Do, did you, could, do you get any sense that people in boxing were or are afraid of Daniel Kenhan? And that's no, one of the reasons why you can't get rid of him. Without doubt. I know that from... from um, from doing the shadow boxing podcast and from doing other pieces uh, about uh, on this story since then, that getting anybody within boxing to talk about him on the record, you get a few, you get a few to talk on the record. It's been very difficult. Like I've got a few over the years, but uh, you know, there's a long list of no's and it just comes up as it's a small world. You know, it is such a small world that uh, everybody knows everybody else. And, you know, sometimes you don't realize the connections until somebody else says you, well, you know, that guy is actually related to him who was a member of the cartel or whatever, that people just think it's not worth the hassle. You know, they just, they, they, 
they, they probably think no, they probably think they'd be safe enough, but they think, why the hell would they take the risk? You know, and I can understand that. You know, in, in fairness, you know, I do understand that. So. Yeah, and you, 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 our producer Karen Bradley kindly sent me the episode in which you discussed the the Kenan effect within boxing, and I was really struck by what you said about Kenan is now effectively back in the background. Do you think he plays a major role in boxing now? From the shadows. Yeah, well, there's there's there are a couple of things on the horizon in boxing, and the information I have is that he's involved. You know, I can't for for obvious reasons. I can't name them because you know we have to be careful about what we say. But uh, no, these would be major events. So that that makes me think he still he still holds significant power here. And it's fair to say, without naming them, there'd be multi-million euro dollar events. Yeah, there was. Big, big, big ticket events. Big money, yeah, yeah. You know, he's still, he's still so, very well connected, yeah, definitely. So, as well as yourself in the pod, there's a, a legendary boxing journalist, Donald McRae. Mm. And he says the same thing as you. He has heard and would be of the belief that Kenan is back. Or did he ever go away? I don't know. But that Kenan still maintains a massive, let's use the word, influence on boxing around the world. Yeah, Don says the same. Yeah, and uh, as you said, like to me, Don is the most respected uh, writer within the sport. You know, and uh, he he's been good on this story. You know, he's been solid, uh, um, and he's asked hard questions. And he would be very. He just he would have a lot of good sources. And you know, you know, when people listen to the pod, they'll hear what Don has to say, and he's pretty convinced. That Daniel Kinnan is involved in professional boxing still, yeah. Can you see him trying to make, despite the sanctions, trying to make another effort to become public and become accepted within the mainstream boxing? I think actually you're better, probably better qualified to answer that because you might be, you might, you would have more knowledge about how far, uh, how close the US authorities are to getting uh, their hands on him. But I think it would be tricky because. Mm. You know, when you even look at the no-fly list, uh, you know, so many people, and some of them with a very loose connection to Daniel Kinnan, weren't allowed to enter the US, you know. So um, I think... It happened to Tyson Fury. He was. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I, I think his brother, Tommy, and, you know, yeah. basically because he was Tyson's brother. So it was a, it was a very broad list. I personally think he's got a very, very, very small chance of rehabilitating himself within boxing because those sanctions are hanging over him. I think it's more likely that he will be charged somewhere. My own view is probably going to be America. So, you know, I'm not going to say never, but I think he's got a very small chance of doing this. Why do you think think he's involved? Is it ego or is it money or is it both? I think it's both. Yeah. You know, it's... um... Like a lot of stuff has come out uh, since the sanctions, you know, across the media about where uh, the Kinnahans had money invested, or and you know, it they they laundered money through all sorts of avenues, you know, through investments in shopping centers, uh, cryptocurrencies, everything, and and I would be pretty confident that boxing was seen as another means to 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 do so. So I think that was part of it. I do think it's his ego. I think he did, you know, the. I think he liked, you know, somebody of the stature, Tyson Fury, name-checking him. Uh, he liked people 
saying it was the best thing to ever happen to boxing. You know, I do think, you know, even that decision, which I think was a very ill-fated one now to do a podcast with James English that never saw the light of day. But I think, you know, the little clip of a preview there that was released as a promo where he talked about being in the Regency and, you know, described um, somebody reaching for a gun. You know, I think uh, I think that's... Uh, it doesn't surprise me that was pulled. You know, like he's, so, like he's admitting basically he's a witness to what happened then. You know, so mm-hmm. he, he, he put himself in tricky territory there, I think. So, um, yeah, I think ego, uh, ego ambition and uh, money. Like I, I mentioned the last podcast, like a podcast, I was in an apartment in a different country years ago doing an interview. And the guy I was interviewing, I was, I was asking him, how did you end up in this apartment? And he was somebody I, I knew, I, uh, I didn't realize any connection in any way to Kinnan. So he said, oh, Daniel Kinnan owns it. And it wasn't a part of the world you would think Daniel Kinnan could have any involvement. But it just shows the strands were everywhere. Let me ask you, Kieran, you would obviously speak to a lot of people off the record in the boxing business here and abroad. What's the view of Kinnan? I mean, is it like, oh, this fellow's a pain in the neck? Or are some people, do you think, Genuinely, still fond of more support him, no matter what. I think um, Daniel Kinnan's rise and his popularity with some people is an indictment of the way professional boxing is. That basically, for generations, a lot of boxers are screwed, or have been screwed by fighters and promote. Or sorry, by managers and promoters. And he, with a, lot, a fair few of them, no, he did pay them well, and he paid them on time, crucially, and he gave them. You know, he, they were able to. Uh, train and stay in good facilities so that's you know that bottom affection because it's a, it is a it is a brutal sport it's a sport where you literally put your life on the line every time you go into the ring the dangers for x fighters so many of them are left with permanent brain injuries with pugilistic dementia um you know they're left damaged in all sorts of ways for after they hang up their gloves so you're only doing that sport and at the professional level to make money you know, it's not, uh, it's not like a, a, at amateur level, it can be, you know, you're doing it because you love, the, you know, the love of the techniques and the skills and the challenges of it. And that's part of the professional game. But it's so dangerous that ultimately it is about money and it's about trying to get a future for yourself and your family that mightn't be there. Otherwise, you know, generally boxers are from very deprived backgrounds. And I think, I mean, it is fair to say, I, personally, I could understand how, somebody who is from a deprived background and Daniel Kinahan takes them under his wing and starts to look after them. I could understand where they would go. I'm not interested in what the media say or whatever. I'm going to base my judgment on Daniel Kinahan in the direct interactions I've had with him. And he's always been good to me. I can understand yeah. why people might say that. Yeah, I, I, no, no, I, I fully agree with that. Like, uh, like a few weeks ago, uh, both of us were part of a documentary that uh, RT Primetime made around the Hutch, Jerry Hutch you know, following his acquittal for, for the Regency. And I thought that was a very fair documentary in the way it, it portrayed the Dublin that he grew up in and how neglected and deprived it was. And you could see how people from that background don't trust the state or the Gardaí or, you know, the people that they see or politicians or the people that are in positions of power because basically... They've never got anything from them, you know, like they've always been, they were left to rot for generations. So, so, uh, 
I could, you know, with so many marginalized communities, that's the case, you know, even now, you know, in different parts of the world. So those, they saw somebody like Daniel Kinnan to, to, as far as they could see, he was treating them fairly and that's all that mattered. You know, the, the official world was saying something otherwise, but that official world had never done anything for them. So they didn't care. I just want to go back to the, you were talking about, the, the the media boycott that MTK had and all that sort of stuff. Now I can I can give you a crime reporter's perspective. I was fascinated by the campaign, the pro Kinnan campaign, and it was really it really was something. Because I was wondering how much money these guys are spending this because you know there were video, there were many docu docu dramas or whatever. You know, I mean there was no mess in there. It was a real big thing. But how did it feel as a sports reporter who covers boxing watching? I was watching it from a criminal perspective. You're watching it from a sports perspective. How did it feel watching it? Well, I can only, obviously I can only talk about it from a person point of view, but to me it was important because it forced me to confront the story. You know, like only if you, like, uh, you know, I would always be very uncomfortable, genuinely, taking any slaps in the back for doing this story because uh, for a number, quite a number of years, I did, I did I stayed away from it. You know, I didn't ask the questions. I interviewed people who were at MTK, and I, you know, I knew Daniel Kinn was this guy behind it. I knew he had background that was interesting, to put it mildly. But I, you know, I just stayed out of it. I just, uh, you know, this isn't a relevance to me. But that ban uh, made me forced. It forced me to think about it more, read about it more. And confronted, and I just thought uh, this is a story that you know you can't ignore. Though to me, it's the biggest story ever in Irish sport. I genuinely think that. I know a lot of people don't agree with that with me, but uh, I think there's never been a, a figure uh, in Irish sport who's who became so powerful in the global sport as Daniel Kinnan. And when you look at his background, it's a massive, massive story. And he's a billionaire, so mm. you know that that's really something. But Kieran, let's be honest, when we're talking about this off air, you did, Donald McRae did. I think it's fair to say a lot of sports reporters didn't get involved. No, but uh, I, I genuinely, I don't blame them. You know, I think everybody, everybody makes their own call, you know, and, and you know, you, you, you don't, I think just, you're going to, like I found this when I started writing on it, you're completely out of your comfort zone. Like, uh, I, I started out in 91, so, like, so you're saying like 25 years after that, I would never touch stories like this. So suddenly you're thrown into it. You're doing something very different for years. You're doing interviews that, uh, you know, often would be quite soft. They're just kind of featurey interviews. You're doing, uh, you know, match reports and covering various sporting events. You're covering, you know, there will be various scandals, like what happens in the FBI and stuff. But you're not dealing uh, with people who are responsible for people being killed. You know, it it is a very different world. And when you're not used to that or you've never done it before, and also, like, to me, it wasn't the case. No, I didn't go in. A lot of um, people go into sports journalism because they're massive sports fans. Like, obviously, have a huge interest in sport. They wouldn't be able to do this for so long. But that's why they've been drawn to it. Like, sport is, is the world to them. I wasn't that way. I fell into it completely by accident. I never thought I'd end up writing about sport. But... um I don't blame like if people. People, but I can see why others might think it's, it's it could be dangerous. 
you know, what is to be gained from it? And also, they might think, I don't know how to cover this. I've got no expertise. I don't have the sources, etc. So I, I'm not... Uh, I'd be reluctant to criticise others. More the people I criticise more are the boxing specialists. You know, like the, see that's something that is an important part of the story. Actually, you know, you look at that, say the Irish media. How many boxing reporters are left full time? I don't think there's any full time. You know, there's a couple that it's their main sort uh, area that they cover, but they do cover other things. And there was a time where in Ireland, the UK, America, etc., every media outlet. Uh, had boxing cars and might have had a couple of them. Like it was so, but all specialist cars have basically well, nearly all been dumped. Like very few, even golf and athletics cars now in Ireland or the UK. It's like soccer is so, and rugby, but to an extent in the UK as well. Like soccer just is this monolith that sports coverage is often 80% soccer. So uh, the people who do cover boxing here, Often, like with myself, it's 5% of what you do. So if you're suddenly confronting a story like this, you're going, I actually don't know this world that well. It's kind of tricky. But there are people who it is what they cover all the time, and they didn't ask the questions. And those are, I would have an issue with those people. Well, see, that, that's my point, Kieran. And I, look, I, I'm going to draw a parallel. Firstly, I think it's an important point. I'm not going to, I'm not praising the kid I'm just being honest. I don't think the kid would ever... Uh, go after a journalist. In my opinion, I I never had any, and I I haven't exactly held back on the Kinnan cartel. I've never had any reason to, to fear any attacks by the Kinnan cartel. I, I just have to be honest. I just I don't know. Maybe maybe Christy Kinnan Senior, Daniel's a hothead. Maybe Christy Kinnan Senior is too smart for that. That that's that's my view. But you raised a fair point. Look, okay, maybe you you were talking about some sports reporters not having the expertise, but they can open their mouth and they can ask questions. And you just said a lot of them didn't ask questions. And I I don't think that's our finest art. And I'm going to give you a parallel. Uh, I'm a crime reporter. So the whole thing is that crime reporters don't mess up, don't do anything to annoy the guards, right? Now, I've done more stories about guard corruption this year than any other journalist. And I have to say, and by the way, you know, guards are delighted when I do it. They really are because it's like, well, you know, shaft him or shaft her or whatever. But I, I never got the sense that, you know, people would stop talking to me. And I do have to say, whenever I do do a story about guard corruption or alleged guard corruption, I feel a certain lightness in myself because I'm going, right, I'm doing this and I'm confronting it. And I, I wonder, do you feel like that as well? That, do you know what I'm saying? There's that sort of, is it relief that you're going after this rather than you're turning you're turning away and turning the other cheek like other reporters have done? Well, uh, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah. I, well, I'll answer it completely honestly, Mick. I, I I don't think it in terms of what, at all of what in terms of what other reporters are doing. I'm very uh, I'm very glad that I took the story on because I think it was worthwhile. Like if I look back now, like we're in a job that retirement could come very quick. <laughs> you know, the, the top of the shoulder comes uh, once you once you go over fifty. Uh, there's a fair chance of it happening, but. Uh, or a lot younger, to be honest. But but uh, if I if I, if I, if I, if I if, say ten years ago, if I finished with journalism, look back on it and say, ah, oh, yeah, I went to a lot of World Cups and Olympics and all that. But I, I think I wouldn't have been that satisfied. I think I did something that's more worthwhile by taking this story on, because I think uh, I just know the you know I know my own background. I know the area that. Uh, have been damaged by the Kinnan Hutch feud. 
I know about marginalized communities. I know I have family involved in boxing and I hate what was done to the sport. So I, I, I just think any little bit at all that could help to highlight what that man uh, did to boxing, you know, is worthwhile. So if, if I'd ended up, um, you know, taking, say, early retirement or redundancy or just moving on to something a few years ago, before I ever touched that story, uh, this story, I think I would have felt a bit dissatisfied. Like I would, I would have had the experience of going to Olympics and World Cups and covering major events and doing a lot of, inter- meeting a lot of interesting people, doing some interesting interviews with them. But I'd never got to teeth with a big story. You know, put my teeth into a big story. You know, where you see somebody like, say, Paul Kimmage, you know, you would have had the Lance Armstrong story or the Michelle Smith story, or even from his own time uh, as a cyclist, you know, he exposed a lot of the doping that went on, you know, he, uh, you know. And I think, uh, so I think this was harder uh, in the sense of hard news and it was harder in the sense of it being tougher to cover and more challenging and I think it was uh, it was what I needed in 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 my life and my career to challenge myself that way because it was completely out of my comfort zone, and you know there's often been times I thought okay I've done enough I'll get out of it because you do when you, you know yourself when you're st- sticking with the story for over a couple of years you get really sick of um, of everybody involved like like even I was thinking about like this last night like if I if I type Daniel into my phone. Like a few years ago, predictive text might have given you Daniel Sturridge or even Dan- yeah. even Daniel O'Donnell, but now you get Daniel Kinnahan straight away. So just after a while, you get a bit weary of it. But I'm glad I've done it because I think I do have a lot of affection for a lot of people within boxing and boxing people and what it does for marginalised communities. And I hate what somebody like him has done to the sport. And just last question, would you have, looking back, say if you hadn't touched it, like others have, would you have regretted that? Would it have been gnawing away at you knowing you could have done something about it, but you didn't? I genuinely don't know. I don't know if I wasn't in the position. I think I would have uh, uh, possibly had regrets that I'd never got, gone after a really big story. So, you know, this, this is the obvious story to me because it's. I think it's too big to ignore. So um, I, I don't know. You know, that's the thing. Would you have regrets if you hadn't gone after it? I don't know. But uh, no, thankfully... The fair news campaign uh, and Sandra Vaughan uh, pushing it and all these people pushing it, that made me force, force me to have a go at it. And last, last question. Look, I know what it's been like. I can say I've, I've been involved in writing about Kenan since oh, 2002, 2003. And, you know, from a crime reporter in perspective, it does take it out of you. It is hard. You have very bad days. It can be very stressful. Would it have been the same for you as a sports reporter trying to cover the sporting aspect of this? Yeah. Would it have to take a toll on you? Yeah, like it's on your on your mind all the time, you know, especially because, you know, when they did the podcast series, that was a lot of work and a lot of interviews and a lot of people say no. So, you know, like it's not just doing the interviews and then editing it and writing the script. You know, you're getting people who will actually talk, you know, and that's not easy in a story like this. And you need to do a podcast series. You need about 10 or 12 you know, to make it worthwhile. You can't get it by two or three people. So, you know, from that point of view, it's challenging. It is on your mind a lot, uh, you know. And you you do feel often as if you're banging your head against a brick wall too, you know, when you, you do, you know, the abuse you get on social media, et cetera, over it. You know, there's so many people uh, in, bo- in sport generally, but in boxing particularly, just want to enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. And if you rock the boat at all, you know, they just, 
you know, you're you know, you're a target. Now, why are you ruining ruining their fun? They don't like that. Well, we're certainly glad you did. So the podcast is called uh, Untouchable. Yeah, it's called Untouchable. It'd be out from Tuesday to Friday, one episode each day. It's just uh, in the build of the Kitty Taylor fight. And I think, you no, know, she's somebody who's been well covered, but I think there are there is stuff in that uh, podcast that people won't know. Or, 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 you know, there's interviews in there by people who've seen a side to her and who have an insight into what's... But it's a very interesting story, I think. Uh, I, I can't really, I'm really looking forward to listening to the whole thing. I've had a sneak preview of one of the episodes when we discussed it about Daniel Kinnan. So it, I'm really, really looking forward to it and, and I'd highly recommend it to our listeners. Kieran Cunningham, Chief Reporter with the Irish City Star, thanks for joining us today. Okay, thanks, Mick. Cheers. <laughs>